Welcome to the DNA of creation, my weekly podcast where we delve into the mystical Kabbalistic meaning of the weekly Torah portion. I'm your host, Gavriel Haram. Thank you for joining me. Uh, today is a, a very interesting Torah portion. Torah portion is called Chai Sarah, which literally means the life of Sarah. Sarah is the first foremother of the Jewish people. And this week's Torah portion talks about soulmates. Of course, this is everyone's favorite Parsha. In fact, on a normal year in Israel, on this week's Torah portion, thousands of single, unmarried men and women, boys and girls, gather, go to the burial place of Sarah, which is in the town of Hebron in Israel, and go to pray to find their soulmate. So it's a very exciting Torah portion, and as always, whenever we talk about relationships, everyone gets very excited, because that seems to be the number one topic on everyone's mind. And uh, we did recently in our, in our weekly program, we offered breakout sessions, we let people choose between relationships, happiness, leadership, and I gave a, cl- a breakout session on Kabbalah and the meaning of life, and 90% of the group chose relationships. A few people, I think 10 people, chose Kabbalah and the Meaning of Life, and no one else really chose the other topics. So we ended up having to do two different sections of, on relationships. So why is it so captivating and exciting? Because most people realize that this is one of the foundations of, what, of life. We're searching for our soulmate. We're searching for a happy and successful marriage. So let's try to uh, understand what the Torah says about it. So I want to start by asking a bunch of questions on the Torah portion. First of all, as we mentioned, the Torah portion is called Chai Sarah, which means the life of Sarah. The only problem is that Sarah is not mentioned in this Torah portion because she passed away between last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha. So it's really talking about Sarah's death. So why do we talk, call it the life of Sarah? That's question number one. Question number two is we spend great length discussing how Abraham purchases and bargains with the person that owns a burial cave to bury his wife. And the Torah goes back and forth about this discussion and this debate over purchasing the cave. Why so much discussion about purchasing a burial cave? But furthermore, it's interesting to note that this is the first time that a Jew, the first Jew, Abraham, purchases land in Israel. This is the first acquisition of land for the Jewish people in Israel. So again, just interesting, what's the connection going on here? Additionally, we learn something phenomenal from the acquisition of the burial cave. And we all know that the whole world, when people get married, they get married with a ring. The question is, why? And the answer is very simple, because of Jewish law. According to Jewish law, in order for a marriage to take effect, the man specifically has to give something of monetary value to the woman, and that affects metaphysically the marriage. And we actually learn that from this week's Torah portion. Now, traditionally, it's given the the object that's given is a ring, and there's kabbalistic and symbolic uh, meaning behind that, which we'll hopefully discuss shortly. But the idea of giving something of monetary value in order to create marriage is actually learned from this week's Torah portion. The fact that Avraham buys a burial cave with money and the word used for that 
transaction is the same word that's associated with marriage later on in the Torah. And from that, the sages tell us that just like Avraham purchased the cave with money, so too marriage takes effect with the giving over of money or something that has monetary value. Now, if you want to take away all romanticism from the marriage process, all you have to do is equate marriage with death. So what is the connection there? Some people like to make a joke that when you get married and when you die is basically, you know, same type of thing. You're going from one state to another. Others like to say that um, that the day a person gets married and the day a person dies is the last time uh, people speak nicely about him. So... We got to understand this. What's going on? Connection between marriage and buying a burial cave. So now let's go into the parsha and and see what happens next. So after Sarah is buried, Avraham decides it's time for my son to get married, my son Yitzchak. So he turns to his servant Eliezer, and he makes him swear to that he will not find a wife for Yitzchak from. The, the, the Canaanites, but rather he will go to Avraham's hometown to a place called Haran, which is in Syria, and he will choose a wife for Yitzhak from Avraham's kin, from, from his relatives. And in order to make Eliezer, give Eliezer this mission of going outside of Israel to find a wife for Yitzhak, Avraham makes Eliezer swear. And we know that in... Uh, courtroom when a person swears they usually put their hands on a Torah and traditionally in Judaism an oath is made while holding a holy object so what holy object did Avraham give Eliezer to swear by so the Torah actually says a euphemism it says put your hand under my thigh and that's a euphemism for something else so what holy objects does Avraham have There are no mitzvahs yet, except for one. Last week's Torah portion, for those of you who want to review, can listen back to the Secret of Circumcision podcast last week. Avraham makes Eliezer hold on to his bris, to his circumcision, which is the first object of mitzvah. It's kind of a strange thing to hold on to while making an oath, and he has him swear. So what is going on? Now, if you didn't think that was... (laughs) Previous thing about marriage and death is weird. This is even weirder. Making an oath while holding on to someone's, you know. So we got to understand that also. And finally, Eliezer goes and travels to Syria. And he arrives at the well in the center of town. And he says a very interesting prayer to God. He says, God, I came here to find a wife for my master, for Yitzchak. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand here by the well, and the first lady I see that I ask for some water to drink, if she gives me water and also gives water to my camels to drink, well, then I'll know she's the right one for my master. So it's like a pretty crazy idea. Like, how does he know that that's it? And then what happens is Rivka comes out, he sees a girl, he asks for something to drink. She right away gives him water drink. And then she says, and I'll also water your camels. And she goes and picks up pail after pail after pail 
to feed this whole caravan of camels. Camels obviously drink a lot of water. And Eliezer says, she's the one. And he runs and starts giving her gold jewelry. And he says, I want you to marry my master Yitzchak. It's like many of us, many people spend years of their life searching for their soulmate. If only it were so easy. All you have to do is go outside and say, God, I'm going to go outside on the street. And the first person I bump into that asks me what time it is, that will be the right one. Imagine if it were so easy. So how does Eliezer know? What's this whole conversation with God all about? So let's begin by discussing the idea of this oath. Now, the Torah tells us something very interesting in this oath that Eliezer makes, where he holds on to Avraham's bris. Something very, very interesting. The Torah says, Avraham says to Eliezer, Swear by the God of the heavens and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from amongst the Canaanites. Rather, go to my birthplace and take a son from there. And then Avraham says, God, the God of the heavens, took me from my father's house in Haran and brought me to the land of Israel. And if you put on your Talmudic thinking cap and you notice the two times that Avraham refers to God, he says it differently. The first time he says, God of heaven and God of earth. And the second time he says, back in the day, God took me out of my birthplace and it was the God of only the heavens. He does not mention the God of earth. And the commentators point out there that before Abraham's time, God was the God of the heavens. But after Abraham's time, it was God of the heavens and God of the earth. Abraham's mission was to reveal to the world that God is not only in heaven, but God is also on earth amongst us in the physical world. And that is the message, as we discussed last week, of bris of circumcision. Because it's not unique to recognize that there's God in heaven. What's unique is to recognize that God exists in everything. Before Avraham, there were people that meditated on God who were separate from the physical world and completely attached to spirituality. The mitzvah of bris reveals to us that in the most physical place on the body, of the most physical gender, that is the place of our relationship, our pact, our covenant with God. Because it's very interesting to note that although the, the sexuality is our most, one of our most physical desires, it's something that can be very manipulated and very abused in our times, in our society, people can look at it as a purely physical Act, it is also the most spiritual and sublime. Why is that? Because if you think about it, what's the most spiritual thing that a human being can ever do? Oftentimes people say, pray, meditate, fast. The answer is no. The most spiritual thing a person can do is create life. That is the most godlike thing that we can do, is actually to create, to procreate. And in the sexual act, we have the ability to literally bring souls into this world. To attach spirituality with physicality. To bring a soul into a body. The very definition of life is the interconnection between soul and body. 
And in that act, we have also the ability to create such an incredible unity between two people when they're bonded spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically. is the greatest act of union and oneness that a human being can do. And through that act comes revelation of spirituality into the physical. So that's the very idea of an object of mitzvah, a holy object. That's the very idea of a mitzvah. The goal of a mitzvah, and mitzvah, which means a commandment, also is related to the word in Hebrew, tzafsa, which means connection. A mitzvah is an opportunity to connect spirituality to physicality, because almost every mitzvah is a physical action that is utilized in a spiritual way. So that's the idea when a person takes an oath, to take an object of mitzvah, because through our mitzvah we have the ability to literally sanctify the physical world, to lift up physicality. And this is the very first mitzvah. It's the epitome of mitzvah. It's the epitome of what being a Jew is all about. It's the connections connecting people to each other, connecting and connecting the sublime spiritual acts to very mundane physicality. Literally connecting heaven and earth. And that's the idea of marriage. Marriage is the coming together of two opposites to come together as one. And I want to begin to discuss marriage. This is again a review of our very first podcast, Genesis, we said the three-part process of creation. Let's look at the very first, husband and wife. That's Adam and Eve. So if we look carefully at the Torah, although we might have had, remembered a story that we might have heard growing up of Adam, God made Adam go to sleep, removed his rib, and created Eve from his rib. That's really not what the Torah says according to the Talmud's understanding and according to really a basic understanding of the Torah. The Torah says God created Adam and Eve, male and female. God created Adam, male and female, he created him. And the commentaries point out that Adam actually was a composite of both male and female. The first human being was both male and female. The Talmud says it was male on one side and female on the other side. And when God took away the rib, the word for rib really means side. He cut Adam, human, in half, and one became male and the other became female. And then he says, and now your job is to, for a a man to find his wife, cling to her, and become like one flesh. So the question arises, if the goal is to become one through marriage, that's literally what marriage is, is two coming together as one, So then why did God separate us in the first place? Why were Adam and Eve separated? The answer is very clear. The answer is that originally God gives us an experience of undifferentiated oneness. That's the process of creation. First there was God in His complete oneness. Then God created a world of multiplicity where He's hidden and our job is to put back the pieces of the puzzle to reveal the harmony that exists in the world through the unique colors and experiences of life. That harmony is even greater than unity. Unity is the undifferentiated experience where everyone is singing the same note. Harmony is the experience when lots of notes come together in perfect harmony and complement each other perfectly. 
So, human beings, Adam and Eve, were created as one. God separated them and said, come back together in harmony. So someone asked, so what's the point of that? The answer is, and we'll discuss in the future at greater de- in greater detail, but the simple explanation is that we get a taste, a taste of that unity, that every one of our souls follow this the same process. We began as one. In the heavenly realm, before a soul came into this world, we were complete, we were whole. Our soul consisted of a male and a female composite that lived together in perfect unity, and we were complete and perfect. Then we were ripped apart and thrown into a world of disharmony, a world of multiplicity, a world of suffering and loneliness and isolation, a world of imperfection. And our job is to heal ourselves and become whole once again. Physically, it means uniting with our other half, finding our soulmate to achieve completion. But spiritually, it means completing ourselves, reconnecting to the wholeness that really exists within us, the brokenness that we all experience in our life from the first time that someone told us we weren't good enough. Whether it was through the trauma of some form of emotional or physical abuse, or for being made fun of by a teacher or a peer, or failing in an assignment at school, we all have a moment in our life where we start to think that we are not good enough. Every human being has that. And our job is to realize that we are good enough because our failures don't define us. Our failures are just opportunities to grow and to improve. So that's the message of life. That we, there's, we experience a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Our souls were one, we were split apart, thrown into a world of emptiness, and we have to come back together to create oneness and harmony in our life. And that's literally what marriage is all about, is the bringing together of opposites. Because the idea of shalom, peace, is not the absence of war. It's rather on the contrary. It's when there's conflict, when there are differences, and you come together despite your differences, to work in harmony as one. So... Literally, that's, that's what marriage is all about. That's the idea of male and female who are different physically, different emotionally, different intellectually. We function so differently. Sometimes it's so hard to understand each other. I mean, it's hard enough with someone who's similar to you, but it's so much harder with someone who's different than you. And that's the ideal form of marriage in Judaism is opposites attract. You're supposed to come together with your opposite because the whole goal of marriage is to reveal oneness, and oneness is only truly revealed when differences are bridged for the greater good. We often live, as I've been speaking about in my podcast on the Kabbalah of politics and conflict revolution, that we live in echo chambers where we often are exposed to only our own ideas, people who think, look, dress just like us. But the reality is that's cutting us off from the true perfection that's possible for humanity, which only comes about when different ideas, different different perspectives, different types of people come together and work together to bridge the gaps, to understand each other, and to achieve balance between the extremes. So Abraham, according to the Torah, is the quintessential personality type called chesed. We've spoken about it extensively. And again, please feel free to look back 
listen to the Kabbalah of politics to get this idea. Avram represents chesed, kindness, expansion, freedom, giving, transgressing borders and boundaries. He's attracted to the opposite, which is Sarah. Sarah is a woman of strength, borders, boundaries, and she determines the direction of the Jewish people. So then Avraham and Sarah give birth to Yitzchak, and Yitzchak represents the opposite of Avraham. Yitzchak is the quintessential Gevura personality type, strength. Yitzchak never leaves the land of Israel. He lives his whole life in borders and boundaries. He has complete and total self-control, willing to give up his life for God as if it were nothing. Yitzchak needs to marry someone who represents chesed, kindness, because the opposites attract. Our other half represents the opposite of us. So Yitzchak has to have someone who not only gives water to Eliezer to drink, but will even feed his camels. So that's how Eliezer knows, this is the one for my master. The idea of your soulmate is the soulmate is somebody who completes you. But not only if you're a person of chesed, kindness, your soulmate has to be a person of gevura, strength, and boundaries. But the goal is that you each balance each other out. Not that, you know, I, can, I can't screw in a light bulb, so I have to marry someone who's handy. Or, you know, you can cook, so you have to marry someone who, can, who makes a lot of money to bring you the food to cook. It doesn't work that way. The reality is, of course, we each have our own roles in the marriage and running a household. Some people have certain strengths in one area, others have strengths in another area. But the goal is that we will bring each other to complete and perfect ourselves. That means if I'm extreme in the area of being too giving and lacking boundaries, my spouse is there to challenge me and get me to come back to balance within myself. Because the goal is the third energy, which we've discussed, which is called teferis, harmony or beauty or truth. That is the goal. The goal is that each person should achieve harmony within themselves and together as a spouse, you create a greater revelation of oneness by coming together despite your differences. So now I want to answer all the questions that we've asked. The cave that Abraham buys to bury Sarah in is in a place called Hebron, city of Hebron. You can go there today. The and pray, that's, that's you know, uh, it's actually a mosque. It's in the Arab territories, Palestinian territories. Jews are allowed to pray in one part of it, where the grave of Avraham, Sarah, and Yaakov and Leah are. The graves of Yitzchak and Rivka, who's discussed in this week's Parsha, is actually on the other side of the uh, building, which is, which is currently a mosque. Jews are only allowed to go there a few times a year. So it's in the town of Hebron, in the neighborhood of Kiryas Arba, which means the neighborhood of the four. And the cave itself is called Maras Hamakpela, the double cave. And the answer to all these things is unbelievable. What's the connection between all this place and this location? Why does the Torah go to such length to describe the purchasing of this cave? Because the word Hebron is related to the word Haver, which means friend or Chibor, which means connection. The whole city is the city of connection. Connection between body and soul. Connection between heaven and earth. Connection between man and woman. 
the neighborhood is called the neighborhood of the four, Kiryas Arba, and the Talmud commentaries explain, it's, refer, it's referring to the four couples who are buried in that cave, according to our tradition, Adam and Eve are also buried in that cave, Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah. And the Maras HaMachpela, the double cave, the word Machpela is actually the, the root of an English word. The word Machpela comes from the Hebrew word Kaful, or literally couple. It's the couple's cave. This is literally the cave where couples are buried. And the connection between marriage, which is done with a ring, or with something of monetary value, and the purchasing of a burial cave, is to tell you the very message that marriage is not only in this world. It's not till death do us part. But marriage is forever, because it's really the reuniting of your other half. That you began as one, you came into the world, and were disconnected from each other, and you come back together as one in unity and harmony. And that marriage lasts beyond this world. The first portion of Eretz of Israel is purchased in the merit of Sarah because the female element corresponds to the earth. She is the vessel that receives the blessing from the husband and then gives birth. That's why a male receives a bris, but a female does not because the male corresponds in the Kabbalistic understanding of how God created the world. There are ten different energies. The male energy is what's called bris, which is the ninth of these spiritual energies, and he passes down that connection to the female who receives it and gives life. That's why the man has to give the ring to the female. The female has to receive it, because in Kabbalah, masculine energy corresponds to chesed, which is giving. Feminine energy corresponds to gvur, which is receiving. The man gives over the seed, the woman receives it, and creates life. That's the bond of marriage. And Avram has Eliezer swear on his bris, which literally represents the act of bringing spirituality into physicality, which is the entire purpose of marriage, is the connection between heaven and earth, body and soul. And the reason this Torah portion is called the life of Sarah, even though it talks only about her death, is because, number one, her life is eternal through her offspring. That's the idea of continuing the covenant of Avram and Sarah. Every generation, when a Jewish person gets married to another Jewish person, they're literally continuing another link in that chain, in that unbroken chain that goes all the way back to Avram and Sarah thousands of years ago. But furthermore, that when a person lives a righteous life, they literally, when a person lives according to spirituality, they literally lift up their body to the level of their soul. So that we go to pray in the graves of righteous people because their bodies, where their physical remains lie, become holy ground because they literally lifted up their body to connect to spirituality. So we should be blessed to find and figure out our true values in life, to figure out what our spiritual and emotional vibration is, to figure out what we need to perfect in our own life, and then to find our other half who vibrates on the opposite frequency, which means inevitably there'll be tension. Finding your soulmate doesn't mean finding the one who's perfect, 
that you complete each other's sentences, never argue, like the same ice cream flavors and the same music, and never have any conflict. On the contrary, your soulmate is the one who's perfect for you. Perfect for you means they're in this world to challenge you, to be a mirror, to hold up to you, to show you your flaws, to show you the areas where you have to work, to bring out the tension in order that the two of you together could perfect yourselves and together we can perfect the world. Wish you all a beautiful Shabbos.